Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we talked about one of the central human experiences, feelings of fear and how to manage them. Over the next two weeks, we're going to conclude the strength of calm with a series of episodes dedicated to another of the primary emotions, anger. Anger is a natural response to pain, frustration, attack, and injustice. Experiencing and expressing anger can be an important way to accept and stand up for ourselves. There's a long history of different individuals and groups having their justifiable anger brushed aside, explained away, or attacked. Anger can mobilize energy and shines a bright light on whatever is at issue. But nonetheless, anger comes with major costs, both physical and interpersonal. It's an extremely forceful, even seductive emotion that's very easy to get swept up by, or turn into a habit. In order to become skillful in working with the mind, we have to learn how to manage our anger effectively. So to help us do that, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. Why, you think I'm some kind of expert on anger? What? (laughs) I just hope you're not that angry at me during the course of this episode. So just to kind of like set us up a little bit here, could you explain some of the physical costs of anger and why it's such an important emotion to exercise a lot of care with? Yeah. So first, acknowledging the benefits of anger. Mm -hmm. That said, it's interesting that the research on the so-called type A personality Mm -hmm. as a risk for cardiovascular disease a lot of what that risk boiled down to was not so much being um, driven and ambitious and hardworking and intense in, the, in terms of aspects of the so-called type A personality, but the key elements of the type A personality that had a lot of negative consequences were summarized under the word hostility, mm. that these are people who are both intense and driven while also being grouchy, grumpy, aggrieved, irritable much of the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe held behind a fairly carefully veiled corporate C-suite level kind of mask, but deep down inside, they kind of are seething. And that quality of seething is really, really bad for us over the long haul. So that's one of the ways in which anger is problematic. Another is to take into account the fact that, frankly, for young males, one of the leading causes of death or serious injury is the inappropriate expression of anger, getting caught up in violence of one kind or another, or finding yourself a little more likely to end up in the wrong kind of place, fighting with the wrong person at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. So that's another way in which anger is actually a serious health risk. And then last, over the long haul, Uh, One of the most dangerous aspects of anger is quietly repressed anger. Mm -hmm. Think of the number of people who go through life with a pinched lip and you you just feel it around them. Mm -hmm. They're resentful. They're irritable. They're long-suffering. They're exasperated a fair amount of the time. But deep down inside, they feel really uh, aggrieved and caught up in that. We're going to talk later about what to deal with real grievances and so forth. But simply walking around frankly, in the language, pissed off, quietly pissed off in the back of your mind much of the time Mm -hmm. is not good for your immune system. It's not good for your digestion. It's a risk factor for the development of an ulcer. Uh, It's just not good all the way around for you, let alone its impact on the people around you. To make mention of that, in addition to the physical costs of anger, there are a number of interpersonal costs. I think that it's worth noting that of all the emotions that we express regularly around other people, anger is the one that commands the most immediate attention. Right. 
personal story. I was at the DMV the other day, uh-huh. and the DMV is a very special little microcosm of the human experience, right? It's kind of like its own separate little universe. The from Department everything of else. Motor Vehicles yes. in California. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's it's a unique beast. And what was striking is that I was actually had to be there two days in a row. Mm. And on both days, there was an instance where there was a screaming child. And what's really interesting is that the cry response was obviously heard by everyone in the small office. Mm. But then secondarily, what was really heard by everyone in the small space was the mom angrily shushing the child. Yeah. It's an experience that I think we've all had where there's kind of an awkward moment in a public environment where somebody's just really mad at somebody yeah. else and no one else knows what to do. Yeah. And that just like feeling of discomfort just kind of pervades the space. Yeah. So if you're looking to improve your interpersonal relationships with other people in any kind of meaningful way, yeah. then becoming more skillful in how we work through our feelings of anger and really particularly, I think, grievance, which you mentioned before, mm. is a really powerful tool to improving relationships with yeah, others. that's right. So to kind of add on to that a little bit, I think that anger is a tricky topic for many people for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. One of them is what I just said, which is that it's so salient. Another one is that in the first episode on the strength of calm, you gave kind of an interesting side mention that I I wanted us to kind of bring Uh back in here, which is this idea that many people have been told to calm down or relax, or it's just not that big of a deal, because sometimes it really is a big deal. Sometimes you're being placated. Their anger is reasonable, and Mm -hmm. they're just being patronized or ignored. Mm -hmm. So in contexts like that, how can we learn to cool and control and manage those negative impacts of anger, which are very significant, without letting ourselves get stepped on or rolled over? It's such a huge question, isn't it? And it reminds me of the Dalai Lama's ninja. I don't know if I've told that story on this podcast. So here you go. Uh, the short version of what could be a really long story is that I was um, on the board of a meditation center in California, and uh, soon after I got on the board, through no merit of my own, uh, the Dalai Lama was coming to a major conference and as a, in California at the center. And as a board member, I was allowed to be in the room in a fairly small gathering, maybe about 100 people, which is a fairly small group uh, for him to address. And there was a lot about everything that happened was, that was pretty amazing, including the level of security that was involved from the U.S. Marshal Service, I guess, because he's, in effect, a visiting kind of sort of head of state. Oh, yeah, he's a visiting dignitary. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. And they were, so in this totally pacifistic Buddhist center, <laughs> sure. were trained attack dogs mm-hmm. and people walking around with submachine guns amidst a whole bunch of Tibetans who were just ecstatic that the Dalai Lama was there and a whole bunch of Westerners who were just tripping out over all the madness. Anyway, so you go into the room, And the Dalai Lama walks in, and he's accompanied by two people. One is his translator, and the other was this fellow dressed in a suit, just kind of radiating happiness and loving kindness in all directions. He moved sort of like a dancer, although clearly he filled out his suit really well. And I didn't pay him much attention. I was, of course, deeply fascinated by the Dalai Lama and listening to what the translator was saying. But after a while, I began to notice this fellow. The guy dressed in the suit, standing in the front of the room, a little bit off to the side, uh, smiling at everyone benevolently, with his eyes continually scanning the room. 
And I began to realize that this fellow who seemed like a kind of retired middle linebacker from a good college football team Mm -hmm. uh, uh, who moved clearly with a lot of athleticism was there to take a bullet for the Dalai Lama. Mm. He was the Dalai Lama's ninja. And it was so striking to feel his very genuine presence of mind, complete, non-aggressive, non-hostile. He wasn't threatening in any way. And simultaneously, you could really feel that this was someone who could leap in front of a bullet if need be. This was someone who probably knew how to disarm you in 17 different ways with a straw and a toothpick. I mean, he was really a solid character. But he was completely happy, completely Mm -hmm. blessing everyone as he was there to do that job. And that's always been a metaphor for me in a way that really landed in my experience of what it can be like to be absolutely committed to protection. That's what anger's about. Anger's about dealing with threats. Anger Mm. also comes up when we're frustrated in the attainment of goals, but it's very much related to what you and I talk about as the safety system, especially associated with the brainstem reptilian stage of evolution. So anger is very much about dealing with threats. And uh, it struck me in watching the Dalai Lama's ninja that you could be incredibly good as a protector as a peaceful warrior, to use that phrase, while at the same time not getting caught up in anger. So Mm. that's kind of a model for me. And one of the ways into that is to know that you really have resourced up that are at a scale necessary for dealing with the threats. Mm. So Mm. I suspect that it's precisely because he was so trained. He was so chill because he knew he could just deal with anything. When you're calm, when you know you, when you feel capable in that way, then you don't have to get angry about it. So I think that's really a a key for people to make sure that you really are scaling up to deal with whatever you got to deal with. Second, find that space inside yourself where you can speak truth to power, where you can be assertive, where you can be fiery if need be, you can firm, you can, you can be firm, you can call it the way you see it without getting caught up in irritation or fault-finding or anger or hostility. And we're going to talk more about how to do that, especially when we get to the strengths of intimacy and courage and and beyond. But just for now, I'd like to call people's attention to what it feels like when you are in that sweet spot yourself, Mm. when you're channeling the Dalai Lama's ninja, in a sense, yourself, talking with your landlord, talking with your teenager, talking with your partner, talking with your parent, whoever it is you might be talking with, what's it like to be grounded in that feeling of strength, asserting yourself as need be, without going to war with mm-hmm. what's around you? Yeah, so you're, you're drawing a distinction effectively here between, to use a big umbrella term, what I'll call skillful anger. Mm-hmm. To kind of frame that in the context of the words that we're using here, you could use a lot of other words for Mm. it, some of which Mm. you've already thrown out there. Um, Ideas of being fierce, or ideas of feeling resourced, or bringing your resources to bear, or standing up for yourself, however you want to put it. So let's just call that kind of skillful anger for the sake of the argument here. And then on the other hand, there's unskillful Mm. anger. Times when we're angrier than we need to be, times when we're angry when we don't need to be at all whatever it might be. So those are kind of those two categories, right? Rallying in our defense in various ways skillfully, rallying in our defense in various ways unskillfully. And so there's some line that exists that defines those two categories, right? 
And so it would occur to me that part of the trick here is about finding where that line is and about, wait, when am I going too far? When have I not gone far enough? So to put it simply, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations here for finding the line between skillful and unskillful uses of anger, and how can we do that inside of the mind? I think that anger is like a yellow flag. Mm. So as soon as you notice that you're angry, uh, it's really important for a flag to go up Mm -hmm. and have you pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. Of the four uh, kinds of negative emotions, as you talked about, uh, sadness, hurt, anxiety, or anger, anger is the one that's most socially consequential. So it's really one to pay attention to. Also, I think, as you said, anger is the most seductive. Mm -hmm. To quote the Buddha, anger comes with its honeyed tip, but poisoned barb. Mm -hmm. People generally don't like feeling sad. They don't like feeling fearful. They don't like feeling ashamed or inadequate. But boy, when that rush of anger comes, it feels so persuasive. It's energizing. It organizes a scattered mind. Along with it typically comes a strong sense of righteousness. Yeah, I deserve to be this way. Yeah, I'm going to pay them back. I'm going to teach them a lesson. Yappity, yappity, yappity. And so precisely because anger is rewarding initially, um, and because it comes often with a lot of uh, justifications wrapped around it, it's especially important to regard it with that kind of a yellow flag. So I think that's one. Two, it's useful to be aware of the two-stage process that's involved most of the time with anger and to be mindful of it. Because the way anger works is uh, research shows there's the priming stage where we start building up ahead of steam. Maybe we feel tired at the end of a long day. We're stressed. Maybe uh, we have felt let down or mistreated by other people. We're kind of building up um, ahead of steam. We're getting revved up here. And then kaboom, the spark drops on this pile of matches, to use your metaphor in the Mm -hmm. book Resilient, the pile of matches that's been gathering dust in a corner. When that spark drops on them, suddenly we got a bonfire. Mm -hmm. And so being aware of the run-up to anger and then the trigger uh, is really useful, including, uh, I would say third, being mindful of the degree to which the trig- your uh, angry reactions may not be in proportion to what's actually happened. Mm. Uh, is it really worth an angry tirade? Do you really need to roll your eyes about this? Is it uh, worth a shouting match? Uh, do you really have to raise your voice to deal with whatever's come your way? Yeah. That's useful right? To ask yourself, is it in proportion to that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things you could potentially do is kind of ask yourself, what would I do here if I had had a really good day? Yeah, that's a great question. And often I think you'd probably realize that you didn't need to talk about it at all. Or if you were going to talk about it, you could talk about it in a more chilled out kind of way with the other person. I'll say one last thing to be very aware of, uh, the degree to which we tend to it other people. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're probably familiar for us. I, I can't remember if we've talked about it in the podcast with Martin Buber's model of relationships mm-hmm. as falling into three categories, I, thou, I, it, and it, it. I, thou is a relationship that may have hierarchy involved or maybe differences of roles, but you're not trying to use other people as a means to your end. Mm. And you have an awareness of your impact on them. I, it is where you're using other people as means to your end. You might have a nice smile about it as you try to sell them a bill of goods, or you might 
uh, be coming on to them uh, at some party in L.A., speaking of personal experience, as your new best friend, and then you finally realize 20 minutes in, they're trying to enroll you in their new $1,000 program. Sure, yeah. Uh, you no, know, you were just a, you were a mark all along. We know what it feels like to be itted by other people. Even if we can't put our finger on it, we know what's really going on here. And flip it around, we can be aware of what it's like to it other people. And then we have it, it, which is sort of like bodies in space moving past each other on a sidewalk or maybe standing beside each other in an elevator. The point is, if you start noticing that you're itting the other person, if they're becoming two-dimensional visually, you're starting to lose a sense of their three-dimensionality. Maybe you're losing a sense of their interior. You're not sustaining that sense of what's called intersubjectivity, where you have a feeling over here of what it's like to be them over there. You're empathic. That's a big, big flag. It's moving beyond a yellow flag at that point into an orange or maybe even a red one that you're hitting those other people and um, you're losing a sense of what your impact on them is like. Um, And I think that's especially true if what arises in your own mind, the ultimate hitting, is you want to destroy them. There's that feeling of being contemptuous, disdainful, demeaning, where you lose your sense of regard for them as a being, you want to punish them uh, and destroy them, then you're in big, 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 big trouble. So to me, those are really, really useful things to be mindful of, to um, stay away from the pitfalls of anger. uh, And if you know that you're going to be trustworthy, to be mindful in those ways, then interestingly, you can afford to tap into what's useful about anger, the intensity, the fieriness, the bright, hot spotlight, it shines on injustice, things that are unfair. You can use those because you can trust yourself Mm. not to go off the rails Mm -hmm. when you're angry. Yeah, I think those are great ways to distinguish between skillful and unskillful ways to work with anger inside of the mind. To throw another one out there, anger is really a messenger. Mm. To return to our kind of basic theory of emotion, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, anger arises when you have unmet needs Mm. on some level. You didn't get something. Yeah. Or you were thwarted. Yeah. And therefore you didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. In the pursuit of something. You wanted a thing and you didn't get it. Yeah. It's sort of the the simplest possible version of why people get angry. There are a lot of different things to want and there are a lot of different ways to not get something, but that's kind of the fundamental equation. Part of the way that we can look at anger as kind of the result of a mathematical equation. And much like a mathematical equation, we can use that result to start filling in the blanks of what Mm. are the things that preceded it. That's great. So yeah, so can we trace the thread of anger in our mind down to something deeper, something more fundamental, Mm. something that may have occurred very recently, whereas you were saying, I had a bad day and now I'm getting a little extra triggered by it, or something very, very, very fundamental I'm angry about this because this is the 20th time that this one example of this stupid thing has happened in my life, dating back to when I was a kid, and my mom wouldn't let me be the thing that I wanted to be when I grew Mm. up. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it might be, I'm using kind of a stereotypical example there. But I do think that it's important to regard anger as an emotion that arises because of a set of circumstances that exist. Mm. And how can we interact with those circumstances? How can we kind of unspool the thread inside of our mind? and follow it through to those deeper wants and needs, where maybe if we were able to satisfy them, the anger would suddenly dissipate. 
or at the very least, we would become much more effective in working with it. So let's say there are two kinds of situations for us. Let's say there's one where uh, reasonable people would agree, yeah, uh, you have every right to be angry sure, about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Anger is what's actually called for here. Uh, yeah, you've got to express it and deal with it appropriately, blah, blah. But yeah, anger is appropriate. Then let's say there's this second case mm-hmm. where reasonable people, especially if they could read your mind or if you were to rewind, let's say, instant replay the last five seconds or five minutes or five years of your life, you'd realize that actually underneath the anger, something else is going on mm. that's really important. Yeah. Even though it's in the first case, there's just anger. It's straightforward. You got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. What you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. But in the second case, whoa, there's something deeper here. Some more profound. Yeah. What do you think yeah. are some of the deep things that sometimes exist? Like what tends to underpin anger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the second case, for me, one of the things that has underpinned my anger when I've been really angry about something is an experience of being misunderstood Mm. on some level Mm. is often something that I think comes up for people. Mm. Another thing that comes up for people, I think, is unwant or unfulfilled needs around love Mm. and around emotions, around interpersonal relationships with people. One of the classic examples of anger is anger from rejection, Mm. right? There's somebody who wants to be with a significant other, and there's a moment of rejection Mm. where somebody doesn't get what they want, and suddenly love transforms into anger. Ah. You go from wanting and desiring to finding every reason in the world why this other person is a horrible human all of a sudden. So what changed? Yeah. The only thing that changed in that moment, it wasn't them, it wasn't you, it was the relationship between. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a really important thing to point to and to notice, that nothing changed, and yet all of a sudden your experience is radically different mm. because something got activated inside you, yeah. a feeling of loss, a feeling of worthlessness, mm. and all of a sudden that transforms into anger. So for me, those are kind of examples of what's often at bottom mm. is that it's about thwarted relationships, difficult relationships, love yeah. at the basement. Hurt. Yeah, hurt of various kinds. hurt under yeah. the anger. Yeah. yeah, what hurts? So... I think that that's one thing that we can be mindful of is mm-hmm. where does it hurt? Yeah. As you like to put it, like what's the feeling inside of you that you tend to run away from? What's the dreaded experience? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, that rings so true for me. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, another funny sort of example. I remember walking through a living room one time and stubbing my toe mm-hmm. on a coffee mm-hmm. table that had been moved in a way that I didn't expect it to be there. And it was dark and I was moving quickly and I was half asleep and stubbed my toe. And I got so angry at the coffee table. Yeah. I kicked the coffee table. Mm-hmm. Now, the coffee table didn't walk itself over there. I was actually the person who probably put it in mm-hmm. the wrong place hours before and I'd forgotten about it. But mm, the pain. There is a tendency to lash out when we experience a sudden pain. And even blaming inanimate objects for having gone out of their way to hurt us. The other thing I want to mention in passing is about the ways that I think for a lot of people, anxiety or fear, uh, a sense of being threatened even, underlies the anger. And it has been useful for me when I'm uh, with people who seem, by their nature uh, or their history, to be aggressive or warlike or warrior like in their personality, to look at them and to observe the amount of fear that's running under the surface. Yeah. And it's very often running under the surface. They're burdened by their own anxiety, mm-hmm. except they can't reveal it, so they put on this big, tough 
often macho sort yeah. of exterior. Anger is often a cloak for hurt, vulnerability, yeah. deeper feelings of weakness. Yeah. As you're describing, you know, who's the child? Where's where's the inner child? What was the experience of yeah. that child? What made that child feel like it needs to push against the world around it? Because anger is really about pushing against. It's not about, you know, combining with. Yeah. So why do you feel like you need to be in opposition? Yeah. You know, what causes that experience to arise? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it was really a kind of a breakthrough for me in my relationship with people like this, to mm-hmm. realize that people, many people who come off as sort of aggressive or warrior-like in their just resting state personality are actually experiencing a lot of anxiety as part of their temperament. Mm-hmm. They have an anxious temperament, actually. Yeah, a lot of fears. Yeah, or even nothing in particular. They're just sort of anxious by temperament. Mm-hmm. And then they manage that in part by moving into a warrior-like stance. Mm. Yeah. Then I didn't feel so afraid of them when I realized that they were anxious deep down inside. So Forrest, before we wrap up, I want to swing back to something you said in the very beginning kind of quickly, mm-hmm. which is that many people have every right in the world to their anger. And they've actually been often told uh, that they shouldn't be so angry. But in fact, they have every right in the world to be angry. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that they're being told not to be angry is because it's in the vested interest of the people they are deservedly angry at, right? And so I want to ask you kind of a question about this. One of the things that has really struck me is that in groups of people, and you can see it really scaled up in the evening news politically, a lot of anger is on behalf of your group because it's tribal. Right? Sure, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Fill in the blank, including my sports team uh, was robbed. We was robbed because sure. that umpire called a ball what was truly a strike. And that's why we lost the World Series. So there is this uh, aspect of anger that's tribal. Two situations. Situation one, you belong to a group of people, your tribe, that's been mistreated or is currently being mistreated by them. And let's say that the mistreatment is totally real. Mm-hmm. All right. How do we grapple with that ourselves? And then flip it around. A related example is what if, let's say, you belong to a group that has historically mistreated a them? And it's actually the case. And maybe even you belong to a group in which many people in that group are still currently mistreating that group of them. These are two situations that I think many, many people find themselves in. And there's often a lot of anger. Yeah. And what do you do about it? Okay. What do you do about the fact that, that you really feel in your heart that your people have been really unjustly treated? Mm -hmm. Or flip it around. What do you do when you're kind of like the lightning rod for someone who's angry at you out of proportion to what you actually Your actual did behavior, because yeah. you belong to that group of people mm-hmm. who have truly, past and present, mistreated the group and including the individual who's now really mad at you? To put a little bit of context on this... I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm extremely aware of the reality that I am a cis white male who grew up to a family that is not divorced, living in a highly safe environment, in a financially pretty stable situation, and over the last 10 to 15 years, really a financially very privileged situation. So 
you're asking a question about privilege, fundamentally, in my opinion, to a person who has been profoundly privileged yeah. on a variety of different levels throughout their life. And I just, I feel like it's appropriate for me to give that as a precursor to whatever sure. I'm about to say here, including yeah. acknowledging my own biases. Yeah, and I would I, myself say I, I too am exactly the way you're describing yourself yeah, in I mean, my we, own history. We both grew up in maybe imperfect, but mm. pretty darn great situations, all things given. Your childhood was perfect for us. Well, because I had troubled. perfect parents That's that right. never made a mistake at any point in and my never childhood never got process. angry. Never got angry, zero interactions with anger. Okay, anyways. So all of that kind of preamble aside, I think we're talking about two things here. We're talking about privilege and we're talking about compassion. Mm. And those are the two things that are running into each other. And I think that where people really get into trouble on both ends of that spectrum are when we only see people as a paragon of their group and we don't see them as people any longer. On the other hand, I think that where we get into trouble a lot of the time as well is when we fail to take responsibility for our part to play in a system. Mm. And I'm very comfortable when I'm interacting with somebody who grew up in a less privileged situation mm -hmm. than me with acknowledging my privilege, mm. as I just did in the preamble mm. to this statement. Yeah. I think that's really important. If you are somebody who has grown up in favored circumstances, whether mm. that be favored by gender or by ethnicity or by socioeconomic status, mm. the single biggest thing that you can do is cop to it. You know what? You're right. I did grow up in a really favorable situation. I think that just that alone mm. is an immediate response to so many grievances. Yeah. Just that simple acknowledgement that you're right. Like, because a lot of it's about a response to fairness, right? Mm. That's really what we're talking about mm. here. This is going to sound like a tangent, but I really like saying I'm sorry. Mm. I really like it in life. I really like saying, oh, you know what? My bad. Because the moment that I've copped to something, I've, in a weird sort of way, kind of released myself from suffering around mm. it. And almost always, 99% of the time, I find that the person that I'm interacting with says something along the lines of, oh, you know what? Don't worry about it. Mm. Or, oh, okay. And all of a sudden, we're into solutions. Mm. We've moved from emotion, fear, anger, whatever it might be, into solutions. And mm. I can manage solutions. I have a much harder time managing somebody else's emotions. Mm. So I love saying I'm sorry. And this is an example where I think it's really appropriate to lead with I'm sorry. To lead with, you know what? You're right. You have a grievance. You had a grievance. This horrible thing did, in fact, happen. I think that it's situations where you have people like Holocaust deniers and people like that to go to the really extreme end of it, yeah. where it's like, I would be enraged too. Yeah, you know, I I would I would be so mad if I felt that I had been part of a system that had been unfair, that the deck had been stacked against me for generations upon generations, mm. and you're going to sit over there and tell me it's all fair? It's not fair. Say it's not fair. Because it's only when we acknowledge that it's unfair that we can move into problem solving. Mm. So as somebody on that side of the scale, I would say first step, confess your privilege. Mm. Start there. Try to have empathy for the other person. Try to have empathy for their experience. Yeah. On the other side of the scale, speaking as somebody, again, who does not have a lot of personal experience being on the side of unprivileged, I would say to try to see the person as a person mm. and to state your truth. 
but then move into your relationship with that individual. And you don't have to concede your grievance against the group when you have a good relationship with one individual. These two things can function independently from one another. When you look at human groups, and you can even see this in primate bands, groups organize around grievances. Mm. And leaders typically in human bands, and then you can see scaled up in human politics, play on grievances as a way to increase group cohesion Mm -hmm. and also to suppress dissent and to build up allegiance to and loyalty to the leader uh, because of the sense of grievance and shared grievance at being attacked by, quote-unquote, them. Mm-hmm. So you see that dynamic. So on the one hand, I think, when I step back from all this, what have I seen? I've seen, on the one hand, people swept along with a sense of grievance that's totally out of proportion to the mistreatment that occurred and uh, manipulated routinely by authoritarian demagogues who fire them up to rev up the tribe, on the one hand. On the other hand, I've seen so many people, Forrest, who... Uh, when I really, really understand what has happened to them in yeah. their family as a kid or what is happening to them in their job or in their marriage or mm-hmm. in a relationship, they deserve to be much more grieved Absolutely. than they actually are. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's... They're suppressing their anger. So yeah. that that's the sweet spot. And I think it's based on discernment where mm-hmm. you really, you have to see, you can recognize both pitfalls. And mm-hmm. what keeps them out of both, what keeps us out of both pitfalls is wise discernment. Yeah, I think that the kind of underlying theme of all the episodes that we've had so far in the calm pillar has been this idea of seeing clearly yeah. and really understanding what the sources of our anger are. Yeah. And seeing the reasonable ones as they are yeah. and acting on those reasonable ones reasonably yeah. and kind of putting the rest to the side. So speaking for one final second on this point of privilege. It may not be some individual's fault, but that doesn't mean you have to let go of your your feelings towards what actually happened. Yeah. You know, it is very appropriate to feel aggrieved in many situations, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to tip into the negative aspects of anger. Yeah. You can you can march, you can protest, you can flood the streets. In without tipping into the negative sides of anger. You can be outraged, but you don't need to be enraged. Yeah, and I think that that's a great distinction, that distinction between outrage and enrage. Yeah. That's really what we're kind of pointing to here. And in fact, I would kind of posit as a theory, again, speaking as an incredibly privileged person, Mm. in my experience, when I have seen somebody controlled in their outrage, Mm. clearly stating the truth of it, bringing all of the moral weight possible to bear, but without being truly enraged, that's when really the message for me has always landed the most strongly. Because we can brush people aside when they're just angry. Because we just say, oh, they're just angry. They're just fired up. They're being emotional. You hear that all the time. Oh, you're being too emotional, whatever it is. Because the people are using your anger, your rightful, righteous anger, as a kind of reason to ignore the content that you are delivering and the moral heft and truth of what you're saying. And so I think that there are a lot of ways 
where anger is kind of the messenger that gets shot, mm. if that sort of makes sense, mm. and the message gets lost. Yeah. Because it was just sort of carried along by that that angry messenger. So we really flew around during this episode, so yeah. I think it probably merits a quick little recap here. We're going to bring this part of this episode to a close. Next week, we're going to focus on the real process of working with anger skillfully. This week was more focused on big ideas, ways that anger manifests inside of our lives, and how we can manage it interpersonally. Next week, we'll be working on more tools that you can have inside of yourself to manage anger when it does arise more skillfully. So during this episode, we explored some of the physical costs of anger, the way that it's actually bad for our body, in addition to the problems it creates for our interpersonal relationships. We talked about how anger can be a tricky topic for people because there are a lot of perfectly reasonable situations for being angry, but that anger comes with such costs. So how do we manage the difference between skillful and unskillful anger? One of the real tools that we settled on was the idea of mindfulness being mindful of the process of anger inside the mind, being aware of the foundation on which anger rests, the idea of every bad incident you have in a day or have in a relationship, becoming one more match that gets thrown into the corner of a house. And sometimes it takes only a very, very small spark to light that whole pile of matches on fire. So it's good to return to what really happened Is this just because I've been having a tricky relationship or a tricky day, or is there truly a strong foundation on which my anger rests? You also mentioned the seductive nature of anger, how anger can really be a cover for underlying feelings of fear and hurt, and how it can almost feel good. Of the four major negative emotions, anger is definitely the one that feels the most pleasurable inside of ourselves, And getting into cycles of anger internally can actually be quite addictive. So it's something to be particularly cautious with. Finally, you kind of sprung a fast one on me there, and we (laughs) talked about some of the societal elements of anger. And what do you do when you have these righteous, real feelings of anger about something that really did happen? How can you interact with them skillfully with members of that other group? How can you manage that anger so that your message comes through instead of simply the top spin of the anger itself? And how can we get better at viewing people as individuals rather than as just proxies for the group that they represent? Yeah, and avoiding the pitfall of getting caught up in grievances that are way out of proportion to the injustice that has actually occurred or flip the other way under claiming the very legitimate grievances you have because you don't feel morally entitled to them, but for sure you actually are. So if you enjoyed the podcast this week, I hope that you'll leave us a rating and a review, maybe a comment on this one, as this one could spark a little bit of conversation possibly. When you do that, it really does help other people find the podcast, and we really do appreciate it. So again, next week, we will be concluding the strength of calm as a whole with a final episode on managing anger skillfully. Until then, thanks for listening.